Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course, James Holland. Uh, James, who are we talking to today? This is a sort of, uh, this is a super match game, isn't it? We've, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is history royalty today. Um, yeah. We've got one of, the, one of the biggest names in the game. It's Andrew Roberts. You know, he's, he's, he started off writing about Halifax some years ago. Yeah. He's been biographer of, um, of many, many notable people. He's written about leadership in war. He's written a single volume history of the Second World War, the Storm of yeah. War. But today we're here to talk to him about Churchill walking yeah. with destiny. And friend of the show, Dominic Sandbrook, of course, on the uh, um, on the, our sister podcast, um, claims it's a, the best single volume biography ever of Churchill. And um, who could possibly argue with Dominic? Uh, and I would agree, it's an absolutely fabulous biography. Uh, and, and interestingly, Andrew, you were able, unlike other people, you were able to get access to sources that no one else before had seen for your work. I was, yes. It's um, uh, very exciting, as you know, to be able to get into a new source. And I was very fortunate that uh, the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. So I was able to use King George VI diaries uh, and he met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. They had an audience together over lunch. Nobody else was allowed to. They served themselves from the sideboard because nobody else could be allowed to be there because of what they were talking about. Because uh, they were talking about the most secret things of the Second World War. They talked about the ultra secret. They talked about uh, the nuclear bomb. They talked about which generals were going to be hired and fired and admirals and ministers and so on. And so clearly nobody else could be present. <laughs> Gosh, Absolutely amazing. Uh, what were his diaries like? I mean, well, I mean, I that was my betrayed. immediate my immediate thought. You know, are they two kippers for breakfast? Uh, no, <laughs> fortunately not. No, actually, you're quite right. Actually, because of course, his father George the Fifth had um, a lot of things about the the weather. You know, he would start off saying which direction he was. He was a classic sailor in that sense. Yeah. You know, which direction the sail the the wind was blowing and so on. Um, but uh, but no, George the Sixth fortunately was much more interested in politics and in the war <laughs> and in uh, and in Churchill as well. You see, they didn't start off as friends at all. Uh, no. Churchill was a uh, um, was in favour of uh, Edward VIII during the abdication crisis. He supported him and of course uh, George VI was a keen appeaser. So they could there's a chance that they wouldn't get on but in fact they, they did get on wonderfully uh, very quickly and uh, and he was the only one of the king's four prime ministers who the king referred to uh, and spoke to using his Christian name. Isn't Gosh. that interesting? And, and I mean both church i mean churchill had this enormous capacity for for disarming people didn't he but i think I mean, would you say that george VI shared that as well i mean i was... think you probably have that if you're king of england anyway don't you there's a sort I, I of so. um, you get a you've got a bit of a head start when it comes to disarming people <laughs> uh, i think he had a uh, he was he was good-natured and a decent man and upstanding and all of those good things and turned out of course to be a King twenty times better than uh, than his brother um, would have been and and had been. So uh, I think in that sense, um, the Churchill came round very quickly to appreciating his uh, his qualities. 
And did Churchill go into that thinking, right, I need to make an effort here. I've got to I've got to court the king. Or did he did he go into it thinking he's just going to have to take me as I am? The, the, you know, the, 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 this is too big an emergency for us to get bogged down in our personalities. Um, actually, I, I know this is a terrible answer ever to give, but there was a little bit of both in it, really. He right. did understand the importance, of course, the constitutional importance of the prime minister and the king getting on. But he did... Uh, he was responsible for a bit of laissez majeste in that he uh, sometimes turned up late to audiences. If there was a cabinet meeting about something very important that was going on, he would uh, sometimes actually even postpone the whole meeting. And so, which the king did not like, or at least the king didn't seem to mind, but the courtiers didn't like it at yeah. all. They thought that that was unacceptable behaviour. But, uh, you know, I mean, if there's um, issues as serious and uh, essentially as existential as the ones of 1940 you know of course he had to uh, to take decisions in the defense committee of the war cabinet rather than going off to buckingham palace yeah yeah um and andrew i mean obviously you you've written halifax's biography as well i mean it, uh, whenever whenever people ask me about you know what do you think was the kind of worst moment of the war for for britain i would say well the, the closest i think they came to kind of throwing in the towel was monday the 27th of may 1940 and i wonder what your take is on those kind of five days in may and the kind of cab war cabinet um machinations that were going on you know do you open peace feelers with the italians do you not you know what's going on with dunkirk at the moment and operation dynamo um the the famous walk in the garden between yes, church and halifax said. what on earth they said i mean what's 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 your view on all this well i'd rather agree with you i mean uh, i think we could quibble about maybe it was the 26th of may owing to the fact that we got 50,000 men back from dunkirk on the 27th but nonetheless it was it was certainly that week of course you're right um and uh, lord halifax was interested in speaking to the italians um there, we know a little later on that Rab Butler, um, Halifax's number two at the Foreign Office, actually wanted was was criticising Churchill and said to the Swedish ambassador that um, uh, that thought rather than bravado would uh, dictate the policy of. Uh, the king's government, you know, there was an incredibly undermining statement to make about the prime minister at a time that's so extremely dangerous. Sorry, common sense and not bravado. Mm. And so, um, so yes, there were elements in the government that would have done a peace deal with Hitler. And just imagine the consequences of that, the way in which the Americans would have uh, recognised that we could no longer be used or couldn't be used as any kind of a uh, springboard for the liberation um, of the continent, what it would do to demoralisation in uh, in Britain, um, the uh, just essentially handing the whole of Western Europe over forever to the Nazis, it would have been absolutely catastrophic for us. Mm. And he also plays a good hand with Chamberlain, doesn't he? I, I've I've always felt that his his handling of Chamberlain, having taken over as Prime Minister, was really masterful. Kind of allowing Chamberlain to stay in Number Ten, being incredibly gracious to him, kind of just sort of gently but but firmly kind of winning him over. Uh, and arguably, that makes a bit of a impact on that crucial week of the twenty sixth, twenty seventh of May. It certainly does. And also, um, yes, one has to remember that Chamberlain doesn't support Halifax in that, even though they've been tremendously close politically uh, for the previous three years. He supports um, Churchill in continuing to wanting to continue to fight on. He was he handled him incredibly deftly. And I think you can see in that wonderful speech, one of Churchill's greatest speeches was the funeral oration at Westminster yes, Abbey. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? For, for, Church, for uh, Chamberlain, uh, in which he says words, uh, which um, every historian should read apart from anything else about the, the nature of, of honour and the nature of um, reputation and, and the nature of history, frankly, you know, in that amazing speech. And it does sum up um, the way he recognised um, the great patriotism that uh, that Chamberlain showed in sort of not throwing in the towel, even though he was suffering from cancer from July 1940 onwards and knew it, you know, but he stayed in post until uh, until October. Yeah, one of the, I mean, amazing. one of the things Churchill has to do during that time, though, is is, is essentially re-engage with Conservative Party politics, doesn't he? Because because he's he's not been properly engaged as a as a part as a as a party. He's been opposing the party for a good decade, hasn't he? Picking picking his issues, creating his own political space, depending on how you look at it, you know, um, 
uh, and so that period after after May, it, you know, once once the crisis of Dunkirk has passed and it's clear what Britain's uh, part or, or, or trajectory or planned trajectory is to stay in the war, to, to hang on in there, to, to carry on. He has to re-engage politically, doesn't he, with the party? Because after all, he's not party leader. And it, that that's... That's a difficult time for Churchill in that respect, isn't it? Very difficult. And this is where Chamberlain, who was party leader until his death, um, could have caused an awful lot of trouble. And there were people in the party who said that Churchill shouldn't become party leader um, and that he should stay as the national figure and look at Lloyd George in the Great War and so on. And so uh, uh, so there was a sort of dangerous precedent, really, there for him. But he recognised that that would have been potentially suicidal, especially if uh, things went wrong or... Um, come the end of the war if they if they just uh, wanted to dump him so so he very much recognized that uh, you had to be party leader in order to uh, to get through that kind of crisis and he as you say uh, he very much had to realign his um, his whole political stance of being essentially anti the Tory party yeah. establishment to actually being its leader. And and a lot of the people in the Tory party establishment, a lot of the people in the 1922 committee, in the actual voluntary wing of the Conservative Party, in on their committees and so on, just couldn't stand Churchill. You know, they they thought of him as a an enemy for 30 plus years who had been a liberal for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and who was um, was wrong on a large number of issues and so on. They they thought he was an interloper and uh, entirely uh, untrustworthy. I think I think you know in modern day politics uh, with the Tory Party there are a few uh, a few uh, parallels there. <laughs> I mean, who travelled who travelled the furthest? Him or the party to 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 make that make up that gap? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it, it, the fortunes of war blue one way and another and and, and, I mean as you say he has to be leader in case anything goes wrong and then things really I mean things do then go very very wrong and they carry on going wrong really for for you know well it well into 1942 um who it does does he travel you know furthest back to the party does the party come to him they're they're both Uh, the 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 third or so of um, Tory MPs, I think, perhaps in any generation, who are essentially careerists and most yep. interested in getting on in uh, in life and in the world and in the party and in politics, um, recognise that he is in charge and they better start uh, moving towards him, which they which they do. Um, the uh, died in the wool appeasers essentially um, also move towards him, at least in that they shut up, you know, they don't uh, undermine him. Um, A few Tory MPs, actually, you mentioned 1942, even in that confidence motion, actually do support uh, no confidence in his government, but very, very few compared to the uh, 400 plus who don't. And then you also um, have this, uh, very much this sense of there not being any obvious um, alternative leader. Uh, you know, Halifax has gone to America, been sent off as ambassador to America. Anthony Eden's too young in any way. He's considered on the Churchillian anti-appeasing side of the party. Um, uh, Sir Kingsley Wood dies of a heart attack fairly soon. Um, and then the other people, you know, like um, uh, the um, the old members of the Chamberlain cabinet are either too old or too attached to appeasement to be a a threat. So there isn't an obvious sort of figure. Leo Amory isn't a, uh, isn't a um, considered to be a a sort of leadership um, candidate. If there was somebody, he'd have been in a a lot of trouble. And when one thinks of the way in which people like Beaverbrook and, and Ernie Bevin even are thought of as alternative Stafford Cripps at one point, alternative Mm. prime ministers in the second world war, he was very fortunate that there wasn't one, uh, obviously, waiting in the wings in the Tory Party. Mm. I mean, it's it's uh, it. The, what's interesting about this is 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 you know in the broad brush conception, people th- don't think that there's party po- politicking going on um, uh, during the Second World War. You know, we all we all we all pull together and plow pull the you know plow the same furrow together. Whereas in fact, all this stuff is all this business is usual, really. That, that this sort of this sort of stuff, and, and and I think some listeners will be surprised that there were no confidence motions. It, it you know it, 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 that that even happened. I think would be strike some people as extraordinary. 
Yes, but doesn't it show that, uh, I mean, in a sense, it's the strength of British democracy that oh, even oh. in the middle of a world war, you know, you can do it that. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, no, I mean, I mean, I, mm. th- that's exactly it. But I think yeah. people people might, might not might not realise quite that there's there, there there is this sort of motion and churn going on. And after all, at the end of it all, there's a general election to be fought once the, you know, the dust has settled and there's domestic politics as well to sort of uh, to shake through and the deal you've got to make with 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 a conscripted army and navy and air force that that in the end you've got to offer you've got to offer them something because that's the disaster of the arguably the disaster of the first world war is that the the, the franchise wasn't enough that's right and also the the other thing they looked at in the first world war was uh, of course with the asquith being brought down uh, by lloyd george and lord northcliffe and various other important uh, figures and then um the uh, the fact that the Squiffites, the Asquithians, never came round to uh, the national government, and the problems that came as a result of that, which which spilled over obviously into uh, peacetime, the uh, people were very worried that that was going to happen as well. And people often forget, of course, that uh, in fact the national government ended in May nineteen forty five, rather than at the time of the general election in July nineteen forty five. You know, it was a Conservative Party that. Uh, that um, was around in the last uh, part of the Second World War, prior to the defeat of Japan, obviously. And so, you know, politics did go on as usual. In fact, what James mentioned earlier about about, uh, Chamberlain was tremendously important because if he had not died, it would have been him who was the key figure in the um, in the home, uh, the the whole organisation of the home front, which actually, of course, was taken on by Clement Attlee as uh, deputy prime minister after Chamberlain's death. But up to that point, it was it was Chamberlain. He was immensely conservative, far to the to the right, essentially, if you can use those kind of expressions, to than Churchill. Whereas um, whereas Attlee was uh, was to the left. So you get Beveridge and so on as a result of Attlee being the key figure on the home front. In a way that would not have happened if if Chamberlain hadn't died of cancer. Fascinating. Ah, oh, gosh. Now, um, uh, the thing, I mean, you're, you're walking with destiny. This is the, 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 one of the things about Winston Churchill, of course, is that, and you know, he wrote, he, he, I'm going to write the history, it'll be kind to me, all that, all that stuff. Um, how do you, when you're approaching him as a biographer, how do you disentangle this man who styles himself as a man of destiny from the idea that he is a man of destiny, but because because that's that's that you know he casts such a gigantic shadow, and and did you know arguably I mean it's Lord Helsham isn't he who said that Churchill Churchill proves the existence of God doesn't he that Churchill's there in the right right place right time you know the, 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 to get caught in the sort of romance of those ideas as a historian must be quite you've got to, you've got to sort of watch yourself haven't you remain hygienic. I think that's a very good word for it. I think um, one's got to remember that actually somebody who believes in their own destiny, that they are, that they have a sort of, uh, sort of God-given um, place in the world to to save uh, Britain and save London, save the empire, and so on. I mean, that is a prima facie case of a psychological disorder, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. You know? yeah. And so, yeah, and and, so, and yet, um, and yet, there was no other way of uh, subtitling that book because when he's sixteen years old, he. Uh, he tells his best friend at uh, at school, Merlin Evans, that um, that there will be a time when great uh, struggles and great battles will take place, and I shall step forward and save England and the empire. He says, you know, <laughs> and then and, and, and Merlin Evans might would have had every right, at, you know, age sixteen at, at Harrow to have laughed at him just like we have. But then fifty years later, he goes and does exactly yeah. that, you yeah. know, and so and so this sense of destiny which I argue in the book comes from not just this idea of him, uh, of, of what he was like when he was 16, but also the things that happened to him, especially the extraordinary number of close brushes with death, yeah. uh, which yeah. he survives. Not not just the military ones, but... Um, Air cl- near, Air, airplane crashes. And two on. airplane crashes, three car crashes, <clears> nearly <throat> drowns. Um, he uh, knocks himself out for a week. Um, he has a... Uh, terrible 
uh, nearly di- the timing nearly uh, dies most uh, uh, dangerous really uh, except for on a battlefield was when he got um, pneumonia aged 11 and uh, very nearly died on that occasion the doctors prescribed him brandy um both orally and rectally uh, which you, which you would have thought might have put you off brandy for life, don't you think? But nonetheless, yeah, quite it certainly the didn't. It was quite the opposite in his case, certainly. Um, and he, there were loads of others. He was in a, involved in a house fire at one stage. You know, he was nearly run over. Well, he was run over in New York, very yeah. nearly killed in, uh, in, in, in by a by a car on Fifth Avenue and Seventy Sixth Street. So, and, and as I say. That doesn't even take into account the four campaigns, uh, five campaigns he fought on four continents, you know, yeah. where bullets were whizzing past his head. There's one moment when he said that uh, to be shot at without result um, is uh, is one of the great uh, exhilarating moments in life, you know. <laughs> There's nothing more exhilarating, he said, than to be shot at without result. And he was shot at without result a great deal, and people around him were actually hit. His brother, in one occasion, the uh, uh, any number of people in the First World War. There's one moment where he left a dugout and five minutes later a German whiz-bang came and decapitated everyone inside. And yeah. that was the moment where he said he thought that invisible wings were beating over him. Well, well um, his, time, his time on the Western Front um, is it, it, very, very, a very interesting episode in his life, isn't it? Because, he, because some see it as, his critics see it as a sort of essentially performative moment where, he th- where you know, his political career has ended in in failure so he he dresses up as a poilu he takes his hamper with him and 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 goes goes to be a battalion commander on the western front uh, and and there is that also that sense with because in march uh, 45 when he when he when he's trying to take part in the varsity rhine crossing there's some people around him who think he's trying to he's trying to get himself killed because that would be the the perfect way to end the story is is uh, as he's crossed the Rhine, he's killed by enemy shell fire or sniper, and and the, and the the chapter is perfectly closed as a, as a warlord. But but on the when he goes to the Somme, he's doing it quite seriously, isn't he? As you say, he's, a whiz a whiz bang is taking out positions around him. It, it, it's not not a performative thing, or is it both? Because it's Churchill. I think anyone who criticises him for uh, for performative art, as you say, uh, has got has got to have um, actually gone into no man's land no fewer than thirty times yeah. on trench trench raids. You know, the dead of night, uh, gone through the barbed wire, got so close to the Germans that they could hear them speaking in their yeah. trenches, and so on. You know, if you've done that, then you can criticise Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, because 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 the thing is 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 the thing is is abs- the thing about. One of the things about Churchill, of course, is because he is such a sort of, he is, a, you know, he's a touchstone for lots of people, for the people who really like him and the people who really don't like him, and 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 very often those things are performative in them in themselves, aren't they? That 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 saying you think Churchill's a rotter is, in, for for some kinds of people, is a very important. Um, uh, you know, flag to run up your flagpole, isn't it? If you're, if and, and, and more and more, of course, in the yep. woke uh, era. I mean, he's uh, he's he's hated by the ultra woke, and mm. uh, lots of books are being written. There's another one I'm just about to review in the Spectator this week, in fact, and uh, there was a one by Jeffrey Wheatcroft um, a few weeks ago. Uh, you get you get them more and more often. In fact, they all start saying saying Churchill is worshipped and admired. But nobody knows the other side to him. You think, yeah. what do you mean nobody knows the other side? All the books at the moment are so critical of him. Yeah. That everyone, yeah. any, you can, the only reason you don't know the other side is if you're completely illiterate. You know, that's what's... <laughs> that's what... <laughs> well, I must admit, I've always, I've, I've always just thought how very fortunate it was um, for, for, for we in the democracies in the Second World War that... The two largest political leaders, the most important political leaders um, in the West, Roosevelt and Churchill, had such enormous geopolitical understanding, whereas the dictators obviously didn't. I mean, you're, well, hard, yes. pushed. you're hard pushed to find someone well, with the, less geopolitical the... understanding than Mussolini, and, and Hitler's kind of running a close second, I'd have thought. Well, because I mean, the, di- the dictators are also men of destiny and have also t- told their best <coughs> friends that, that there's going to be a crisis to come. Yes. And, and they're going to they're going to save and change the world. I mean, this, which is yes, but they have all, they have after all Hitler's pitch, isn't it? Is that yeah? No, absolutely. But 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 they don't share that geopolitical understanding. No. They don't have that worldliness. They don't have that kind of big vision in the same way that Roosevelt and Churchill do. And I think, but there's know, a draw, drawback with this. I think this um, uh, stance, James, um, which is of course that is Stalin. 
you know, uh, it's it's not very professional at the moment to say anything terribly pro-Russian, but they lost 27 million killed in the Second World War under Stalin. And he did, uh, he, he didn't have a great geopolitical sense because otherwise he wouldn't have signed the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact. But he certainly had a very strong sense of where Russia's uh, ultimate interests and and to use that word again, destiny lay. And had it not been for Stalin, who essentially killed four out of five of every Germans who were killed in in combat, not bombed from the air, but killed in combat on battlefields in the Second World War, you know, we, um, uh, we couldn't have won. So, so it, yes, you're right about having these two extraordinary leaders of the democracies, but actually also having somebody who... Uh, did not buckle and did not and was not defeated in uh, in the east, even though he was a, a, a totalitarian dictator as bad as Hitler. Well, well, yes. I mean, I suppose my whole point about that is it it, it depends on what angle you're, you're looking at. I mean, you, you I've been reading a um, well, you and I, Al, have both been reading David Starr recently. He wrote makes a very yeah. very convincing case that um, Germany was not well equipped for. Barbarossa in the first place, either economically or in terms of manpower or in terms of pretty much anything else. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always argued that the the war in the East was <laughs> the war was lost to Germany by autumn of nineteen forty one, and and uh, I think it was. But you also have to understand that one has to understand, of course, that that economically it was the West that smashed Germany, not the East. Um, you know, what was it, seven percent on four percent or something on on Panzers and forty three percent on Luftwaffe in nineteen forty three. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the Americans building two and a half million trucks, um, uh, to you know, half of which go to the Soviets. So I mean, it, it, that that sort of stuff. But my 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 bigger point was 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 just that from a Western point of view of sort of managing the war and how you fight it in an efficient way, which reduces the number of our own young lives being killed, that harnessing of air, land, sea power, of understanding the importance of the oceans, of of, of how you harness big industry, all the rest of it. Ultimately, the ultimate arbitrators of that are Roosevelt and Churchill. And I think they do that fantastically well and they, they see that kind of big vision of how the world works and, and and the place in it in a very very skillful way and i think that is largely due to their their backgrounds their big vision their well, geopolitical understanding another area of course that's very important is that uh which is a great advantage to democracies is that the chiefs of staff are not scared you know they are able people like alan brooke and uh george marshall are able to put their opinions to churchill and uh, and roosevelt and indeed each other um in a way that is uh is bound by the normal democratic western uh open ways of of discussion so yep. you're not you're under no danger uh, that you're going to be sent to the lubyanka uh, if you say something that uh, that the dictator doesn't like and that's a tremendously important thing in in war in fact we're probably seeing aren't we in uh, the ukraine war now uh, putin being told things that are not true in, because he the, the the person who's telling them doesn't want to uh, tell him bad news yeah it, it, I mean, that collegiate style is a very, it, 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 which is essentially what we're talking about, is is very striking on the Allied side, isn't it? Where, it, it, I mean, although obviously you have people worrying about their careers and being sacked, but that's but that's the that's the extent of it, rather than rather than you know Hitler running his army, his field marshals on packets of land, bribery, uh, field marshals batons and all that sort of stuff, and and turning those things on and off. Turning the tap off on on bribery and and uh, promotion when they don't perform, and you know you look at the if you're if you're a German general who's sacked, you're probably rehired within nine months anyway because Hitler's gone through his Rolodex because all right, well we'll have to get we'll have to get Modal back in, you know th- th- that happens. Whereas the Allied, you know, if you're an Allied general, if you've if you've messed up, you tend to get I, I well the British Army gets sent to India generally. Um, <laughs> yeah, flicked, flicked yeah. over to India, but yeah, but yeah. but but that that collegiate style comes right from the top, though, doesn't it? Is that is that for all of Churchill's sort of uh, forcefulness as a person, he's prepared to do that, which is really which is which is eternally to his credit. 
Yes, especially as he's made himself Minister of Defence, of course, in May 1940, as well as uh, as well as prime, being Prime Minister. So he had the constitutional uh, right to uh, to preside over the Defence Committee of the War Cabinet um, in in both roles, and so he would sit there as. Um, as uh, Alan Brooke broke pencils in half in front of his face, saying, no, I disagree with you, Prime Minister, crack, which must be extremely off-putting to have a sort of six-foot-two Ulsterman breaking a pencil in, in front of your nose. And, uh, and uh, of course, Alan Brooke also, um, members of his family had uh, fought at Gallipoli, so he knew perfectly well uh, that when Churchill makes a mistake uh, strategically, it can be a hell of a mistake. And uh, and he knew that from, from personal sort of family uh, experience so so yeah he was he was held back from uh, doing lots of things that um, uh, that he wanted to do um, that the chiefs of staff essentially stopped him from doing and yet it never broke their connection there was one moment where all three of them considered amongst themselves that they were going to threaten to um, resign, which is in March 1944 over the North Sumatran plan. But other than that, you know, they they, they came to strategy as the result of, of logical and rational debate. Mm. And that's not what's going on in the Wolfschanzer, no. you know, 1800 miles behind the Russian front. Right. We need to take a very quick break now. We'll be back in a second. Uh, we're talking to Andrew Roberts about Winston Churchill. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk uh, with James Holland and me, Al Murray, and we're talking to Andrew Roberts about... Winston Churchill. I mean, who else to talk to, um, uh, in all honesty? Now, Andrew, one of the things, um, you know, we've been talking we've been talking around Churchill's leadership style, you know, the, the, the idea that he's a man of destiny. One thing he most definitely is, though, um, and I'm, I'm happy to use this word loosely because I, I get called a historian and I'm not. I'm a consumer of history. I'm a I'm a person who likes it. I would never, ever I would never, ever describe myself as a historian. But Churchill so much of where Churchill comes from, the strategic sense James is talking about, his 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 ambition for what the Allies can achieve, comes from being a historian, doesn't it? Yes, 
um, undoubtedly. He uh, saw himself as a historian, or at least as a as a writer. He started as a journalist, of course, but the uh, journalism that he did, especially the war journalism, um, tended to be about issues that were historically important. He wrote several serious history books. Um, actually, I've got all of his first editions, many of them signed just here on my shelf here. And when I look across, I see the River War. Uh, I see his First World War books, which, of course, were semi-autobiographical, but they were also... He wrote about uh, London to Ladysmith and the uh, Boer War. Uh, his life of Marlborough is still, by many, considered the best um, life of uh, one of the greatest... Uh, some argue the greatest British soldier ever. So we've got a, um, a a corpus of historical understanding and knowledge. The number of times I went through them once, his 1940 speeches, some 10% of them are given over to history. He uses history as a way of trying to basically tell to the British people, yes, this is a completely nerve-wracking and terrible terrible time. However, we have been here before. In fact, we've been here before in 1588 and in Louis XIV's time and in the First World War, of course, and with Napoleon, and we've come out well each time, victorious each time. So, so put it into its proper historical perspective, these terrible, perilous times. And so being a historian, actually, I think, you're absolutely right, Al, is, is epicentral to understanding who he is. But also, he's not, although he's a historian and, and, and very conscious of the past, he's also a modernist as well, isn't he? He embraces modernity and, and you know, he surrounds himself with technocrats, you know, whether, whether it's um, Lord Charwell, whether it's Oliver Littleton, um, later Lord Chandos, you know, etc., etc., yeah, he loves he loves writing articles all the way through the thirties. He's writing articles about how a bomb the size of an orange could take out a city. You know, this is years before um, before nuclear scientists have actually come anywhere near being able to do that. Um, but he learns from physicists who he invites to Chartwell uh, during the nineteen thirties um, about what is um, the, the capacity of. of that science has to to change warfare and not just warfare also uh, various other aspects of uh, of human life so you have a um a, somebody who's constantly questing but my sense is that that's partly because he was interested in yeah. the past and history because he recognized that the successful people in the past have been the ones who embrace change and embrace um, science and modernity yeah and track progress because i mean the, the he, i mean it if nothing else, his poli- his political uh, arc is so peculiar in terms of, you know, he he's he's absolutely in the forefront of of the of you know, and it, a lot of people will fall off their chair to hear that he was at the forefront of the idea of the welfare state, essentially, with with you know, with national insurance before the First World War, that, and, that and um and labour exchange exactly that he's completely intimately tied up in that stuff. Whereas you know that people think oh it's about sending tanks to defeat trade unionists and, and, and well <laughs> <laughs> you know what but you know what I mean because because yeah. so much of his political career is 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 used as a football rather than actually what, what did he what what did he do in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's nice of you to say an arc um, as, a, as though it has a sort of natural trajectory. Because well, no, it is, of course, it's a, it's a roller coaster, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, absolutely exactly. a roller coaster yeah. that, 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 that you have no idea where it's going to go next. Sort of roller coaster in the dark almost. But I mean, by, by, the, by the time he's, I mean, because most people, if they get to Chancellor the Exchequer, and then their and then their political career doesn't work out. That's normal. That's a usual. That's a usual political trajectory for people, isn't it? That they yeah. that they maybe get that far, uh, and 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 then and then they and then they I don't know. They go into business, or they go back. They go into journalism, or they or or, or whatever it is, or they go to the House of Lords. Actually, is what it, it, is what traditionally happens. But as a because he's a young he's a young chance. He's a tyro politician. To I mean to a lot of people, isn't he? So what, what was he ever going to do after, after the end of that first phase of his career? Well, a lot of people, of course, thought that that was the end, uh, yep. including including his wife at one point. In fact, it's very difficult to see anyone at all in the 1930s uh, who there's one person. But other than that, nobody thinks that he's going to be prime minister. And that one person is Churchill himself. Uh, he's the only person who doesn't give up hope in Churchill. You know, there are very few people, Bob Boothby, you could mention, Harold Macmillan slightly, perhaps, uh, a few others, uh, Brendan Bracken, certainly, who think that he's he's in with a chance if something extraordinary happens, but it would take a world war. And then a world war comes along, you know. Yeah. And this is the key. This is the key thing. And this is, of course, the reason that I, 
I um, subtitled my book Walking with Destiny because his phrase that he comes up with in the last part of the um, first volume, The Gathering Storm, the, fir the first volume of his memoirs of the Second World War, he says that I felt as if, uh, speaking of the 10th of May 1940, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been a but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And so all of his past life, the bit where he was Home Secretary, the bit where he was Chancellor that we mentioned earlier, especially the bit, of course, when he was uh, not once but twice First Lord of the Admiralty, these were all preparations he considered to, for this uh, extraordinary moment of 1940. Hmm. It, yes, I mean, I, it's, did, did you, when you sit down, when you sat down to write about it, did you, did you, do you have to struggle with the, he's sort of too big, isn't he, in a way, he's, he's yeah, I I, uh, I knew at some stage that I was going to write this book, but I'd rather put it off to my, I thought it was going to be something I'd do at the end of my um, writing career when I was in my 70s, rather than do it when I was in my 50s. But um, but my wife and my publisher and my agent said, no, 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 you've got to do it whilst you're still, you know, able to, <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as possible. And I'm very pleased I did, not least because it did allow me First of all, of course, uh, the, the Royal Archives coming available, but there were 47 other sets of archives that had been deposited at Churchill College, uh, Cambridge, that I was able to use that had been deposited since the last major biography of him, uh, Roy Jenkins one. So I knew that there was going to be plenty of new stuff, especially um, the uh, papers of people like Ivan Maisky, the uh, Russian ambassador, who uh, uh, who I knew that that there were lots of these papers that if I didn't use them, some other um, biographer was going to. And uh, you know that feeling, don't you, James? You know you come across something and you think, oh my gosh, I've got I've got to sort of pounce. And in my previous book, Masters and Commanders, I had discovered the verbatim accounts of the War Cabinet, and um, uh, so. I wanted to use them as well to sort of tie Which in. Which are amazing, aren't they? Yeah, because it, it, it's so in the moment. I mean, it's, exactly. It's... Yes, that's right. And and I, and, and I came across those one one Friday evening waiting for a, a train, and they were in uh, in hieroglyphics and uh, shorthand, and I'd I'd never uh, and I didn't know what they were. And once I'd uh, deciphered them and used them for that uh, for that book, I thought this needs to actually be put in the context of a biography. Um, not just a, a normal history book. Gosh. And what, and what about Andrew? What about his his amazing character? I mean, I never forget one of the best accounts I've ever heard of, of Churchill in action was was in in Oliver Littleton, who I mentioned a minute ago, um, in his his autobiography, his memoir. And he talks about Churchill sort of taking a bite of steak pie with one hand and then a chocolate truffle and a swig of champagne and then a glug of claret and you know then a brandy and it's all all happening at once and at the same time he seems to be talking non-stop which is somehow impossible because he's eating and drinking at the same time <laughs> and and you do get this sort of this incredible larger than life image um sort of appearing and and i mean what did you make of him and his his enormous capacity for work and just life i mean it's extraordinary isn't it really Yes, I, I think... Um, That's not exaggerated, is it? It's not in the slightest. No, the Chandos memoirs are absolutely superb on the, on the, that aspect, that sort of, you know, life-enhancing, uh, trying to grab every moment kind of uh, aspect of, of Churchill. It, it's, it's born of a something, not just his belief in his destiny, but also a tremendous energy, um, a sense of... Um, of not having much time, which is, seems extraordinary considering he lived to be 90, but most of his uncles and aunts died in their mid-40s. His father died at 45. And so he he thought that he wasn't going to have much time in his life to achieve the things that he needed to. And so he was turbocharged for that reason too. Plus he had the most enormous sort of weight on his shoulders. First of all, his father had been Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, also, you know, his his great ancestors, <laughs> the Duke of Bourbon, the classic one, he's born at Blenheim Palace. You know, he couldn't just be a, a nobody or a also ran because he would uh, uh, be seen in light of them. So he was driven also by this uh, by this sort of dynastic uh, sense, too. So uh, I think um, there are lots of 
psychological things going on with Winston Churchill. Not, however, um, and I'm sure we would get onto this at some stage, might as well mention it now, Black Dog. I don't think he was a manic depressive. I don't think he could have chaired 900 meetings of the war cabinet between 1940 and 45 if he had been a true manic depressive which is a debilitating illness and something that uh, that would have made that impossible he got depressed at times uh, when Al was talking about 1942 he got depressed at the fall of Singapore and the fall yeah. of Tobruk and so on but any any normal sentient being would have got depressed when yes and like there's moments happened. aren't there where where you know at the end of the day he goes to bed with a you know, with one of one of his close colleagues, and they sit in silence, and they're both feeling so sick with worry and all the rest of it. But that's because, as you say, because it's an incredibly tense and scary time. Yeah, and yeah. you've got to make these incredible decisions. Yeah. Um, and there's also a moment where he can't eat, where he and Anthony Eden, they've just sent, I think it's St. Valerie or something to do with the 51st uh, Highland Division, I think, or was it maybe uh, Calais, uh, where they um, where they, they couldn't eat lunch because they'd essentially sent men to their doom and knew it. I think it was the Calais one, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's an awful moment. So that, which which is not something that either Stalin or Hitler would, I mean, ne- neither of them were ever put off, off their meals by the idea of sending men to their doom. His, his wife wrote to him at one point saying, you're becoming a bully, didn't she? And said, you're, you're, you're losing control of yourself and you're alienating people. Yes, um, she was a great. She was great at uh, at uh, those kind of letters. So reading yeah. him in a bit. Didn't <laughs> she? She used to yeah, yeah. Him off. Everyone, everyone's always uh, taken um, her side of the view of the, uh, and sort of assumed that that is uh, is right. But she was ticking people off the entire time, and right. he was no oh, okay. exception. Um, but also, uh, also, you know, if there's a, a mo- yes, I mean. Today, of course, it's impossible to uh, to bully your civil servants. But when the fate of the nation's in uh, in uh, your hands, and also it's back in the nineteen forties when you didn't have that kind of uh, attitude, um, then uh, then people sort of put up with it a bit more. And so, yes, he could be extremely tough on people. But there is no example of anyone who worked closely with him um, ever say, they, they all write about it, but none of them complain about it. They all they all perfectly understood that under the stresses and the strains that he was under, it was uh, entirely human and natural for him to respond like that occasionally and what he would mm. always do afterwards. And you see this again and again in Great Men, actually. You see this uh, with uh, with Napoleon as well and several other people. Uh, is that he would make sure that in some way or another, the next time they met, he would not actually verbally apologise, but he would make it clear that he... Uh, didn't hold any grudge that it was that he was that he was sorry, but he never said sorry, as it were. <laughs> Gosh, I feel rather we're talking to the oracle here, Andrew. So there are, I've so many so many questions. <laughs> I, um, I, I want I, I want to ask, what do you think he regarded as his? Um, Biggest biggest errors during during the war because after all strategically the British got their way didn't they um, uh, all the way through the war and and, and no, she, no 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 well I'd, I'd say no. you know we, we don't we, we don't go to Normandy until forty four the, the the sort of chivying of the Americans into strategic positions that the British would prefer to adopt maybe that's the a yes. Way of putting it. No. I, yeah. No. 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 We do. I think up until um, up until D Day. Uh, I think after that he was um, he was opposed to Operation Dragoon um, yeah. and a little yeah, down yeah, in yeah. the south of France he was he wanted a Balkan attack that was going to liberate. Uh, Vienna before and push into the Balkans to stop the Red Army from taking yep. Eastern Europe, and he was stopped from doing that. Um, and actually, by the way, uh, Allenbrook was against that as well. The chief yeah. of staff didn't want that either, and so that wasn't so was, going so to was happen. So was Jumbo Wilson, to be fair, as well. Yes, yeah, no, they was not going to happen. But um, it's not as though he he got everything that uh, he wanted, and, and there were lots of things. There was a Northern Norway um, a, a attack that he wanted, which um, would have been incredibly costly, you know. So, mm. so there were, I mean. Again, going back to Alan Brooke, you know, he he once said that he that Churchill had ten ideas a day and he had to shoot down nine of them. Yeah. But um, it's not bad to have one good idea a day, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, it would it would be a start. Um, the, <laughs> but what's so fascinating though is that is that he, you know, he he was prepared to give to Alan Brooke, wasn't he? He was the, 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 he was prepared to concede, um, uh, which I think is. 
you know, when we think of who the popular conception of his characters is, is, is he's stubborn, that he held his ground, that he knew best and all that sort of stuff. But that he was prepared to concede is, is really essentially that how it how the British strategic war effort was successful, isn't it? Is that he? Yes. I mean, we've talked about we touched on this earlier, but it's the absolute core of of how it worked. Yes, uh, but he did need to see that all three of the chiefs of staff were um, were opposed to whatever it is he wanted. He was yep. uh, very adept at using uh, at using his eloquence, of course, and his uh, and his humour and his good nature, but also you know clenched fists on the table and shouting and so on to try to uh, to get at least one of them, be it portal or uh, or pound, uh, to to break off from the uh, from the overall decision of the three of them, and it was in a sense Brooks genius uh, that that never happened and that they only ever gave advice of the three of them together and um, he was very much uh, primus inter pares uh, really as well as of course being chairman of the uh, of the of the chiefs and um, and Churchill did have that uh, did have that uh, sense that he if he could only break off one of the chiefs against the other two then he would be in a position to see his policy get through but uh, but what he what he for some reason never seemed to clock was that just prior to going into a meeting of the defense committee uh, brooke would square the entire agenda with pound and portal later <laughs> with cunningham uh, to to make sure he didn't that this yeah. did not happen you know yeah yeah, because uh, he did go through a, a, a frustrating phase, didn't, or a frustrated phase, where he, he he wanted to know why his generals wouldn't fight and uh, 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 and why the army c- couldn't get its act together and useless mouths and all that sort of stuff. When does he catch up with the, the sort of you know the, the the tactical and therefore strategic realities of of, of what the army? The army, because it's the army in particular, what the army's actually capable of. Well, it actually goes goes beyond that, of course, because there's that famous phrase about how you can, talking about the chiefs of staff, how you can take the most valiant uh, airman, the most, uh, the, the bravest soldier, the uh, most dashing admiral, and what do you have when you put them together? The sum of their fears. Which is a terrible thing, really, to say about the chiefs of staff in the Second World War. You know, they were they were not fearful. They were not fearful. They were they were cautious uh, at times when you needed to be. You know, when one looks at uh, at uh, what uh, the British uh, armed forces went through in the Second World War, it was right to be cautious for a lot of the time. Um, but uh, but to to answer your question, it's it's really Alamein. I think um, after Alamein, you don't get quite so much of this consistent criticism of uh, of every aspect of uh, the army what you do get of course is is the same kind of criticism during the mediterranean uh, campaign especially of the americans you know where he goes the americans won't move until they've got their hairdressers and the coca-cola bottling department so on, you know, and there's, there's a, and I've, I've, I've counted up that there need to be seventeen men behind every fighting man, and you know it should be the other way round, and all this, um, and uh, and so he transfers a lot of that natural sense of frustration and irritation, especially after Anzio, uh, from the from the British Army onto the uh, American forces. But but Andrew, I just wanted to just touch on 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 both vision and oratory because I think the two are obviously so so clearly linked. And I suppose to go back to nineteen forty, I mean, you think about some of those speeches, whether it's the eighteenth of June or whether it's the fourth of June or, or or later on in August, or the, the the big famous ones. I mean, you've got something like sixty four percent of the entire population of Great Britain listening. You know, if you think that, and then sort of take out sort of. 20% children or something. I mean, that's it's like, it's just mm. an incredible proportion of the adult population and listening. Yeah, and it was all down ability... to pubs. You know, it was all down to pubs. It was the well, fact that at nine absolutely. o'clock, everyone went quiet and listened. They took, yeah. The landlord would turn it up and everyone would go quiet and listen, you know. But, but, but what he's conveying is a sense of, of, of self-belief, of confidence, of, yes, we're in a critical situation, but actually we've got lots in our favour. Um... It, it's a vision for the war. It's a vision of how to get through, and 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 that unifying factor. It, it sort of sounds unfashionable today, isn't it, to kind of sort of overegg that particular bit? But I always felt 
whenever I've kind of looked into studied Churchill in any detail, that that was a really, really important factor, that that is a big part of his chemistry, is this, this sense of selling a vision, selling a view, using words and what I was saying earlier on about that geopolitical understanding to kind of get the country behind you, which I think, broadly speaking, he does. That's right. But a lot of it, frankly, is not rational. I mean, when you when you read it together, uh, to, uh, when you read it today and you see the stuff about, oh, there's going to be a bad harvest in in Europe. There's going to be an uprising in France. The Americans are about to come in any moment. You know, there's one argument after another that he makes that are completely wrong, you know, that, that don't hold any kind of water. And you'd have to be immensely, even in 1940, immensely um uh, I about to say naive, that's the wrong word, but optimistic to to uh, go along with these ideas. I mean, the, what about the ones about great French counterattacks yes. in the uh, in the, in sort of June nineteen forty? There's no there's no chance of that happening, and Churchill knew it. So you have a, a plus. Of course, he exaggerates the number of U-boats being sunk to the most by by huge margins, and and of course he does because it's about morale. It's about. Uh, a uh, a chance of grabbing at any straw that you can think of in order to keep morale high, and he did it, and it was successful. And uh, and you know the the truth in war has to be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies, or at least a bodyguard of exaggeration, and uh, so on. And and in a sense, that was sort of part of his greatness. And I wonder, I wonder whether or not had we had a Halifax or a Chamberlain carrying on that war, whether or not they would have exaggerated the uh, very slight positive and ignored the negatives to the extent that Churchill did. You know, I think you needed somebody who throughout his life uh, did not mind exaggerating uh, to to get us through that. Hmm. Uh, just I mean, that, that, that after all is one of the one of the great questions around Churchill is, is, is the, is the it, where does the rhetoric, the public rhetoric sit? It sits. I mean, it sits hugely in people's imaginations. But I mean, you look in mass observation, you, you get people saying, Oh, here he goes again. It's another one of his, another one of his harebrained speeches that's supposed to rouse us. But then that's also arguably the nature of who's doing mass observation and and uh, and and what mass observation is. But I, it, it's I mean, Just it's, for those who don't know, mass observation was a was a kind of sort of polling of people. They got they, it was it started off in the nineteen thirties as a sort of social experiment to see see what ordinary people were thinking on a day to day basis, and they got people to keep diaries and stuff, and they then did polling. But obviously, once the war began, it took on a kind of whole different level. Yeah, and it's not and it's not polling in the sense of Gallup polling because and and when you look at the only polling that was done, which is Gallup polling, Churchill never dips below seventy eight percent approval ratings. On two three occasions, he gets the ninety three. He averages eighty. These are numbers that have never been seen before or since. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely, is certainly is. Um. Uh, well, well. Uh, uh. James. Um, this has been fantastic, Andrew. Thank you so much uh, for for um, coming to talk to us. I mean, I almost feel like we need to we need to get some questions from the listeners and and have you back at some point uh, <laughs> okay. to, to go through what they what they want to talk about because it, it, you know we talked mentioned it earlier. It's so big, and it he's so big and he's so central to the whether people like it or not i mean that's the thing about winston churchill whether whether they like it or not he's central to the story of the second world war um uh, whether they like him or not that he he is you know uh, he's a fact of life i'd be very i'd be very happy to uh, come back on and answer any questions from anyone who has read the book <laughs> <laughs> Well, having said that, if you do answer some questions, you might get more people buying the book as well. Oh, yeah, That's well, what, yeah, even yeah. more than have already bought. Even more than have already bought it. But yeah, no, it's um, it's been great having you on, though, Andrew. Yeah, Thanks well, so thank much you for so doing much. This. Yeah, you are kind. I much enjoyed it. Bye, guys. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye, bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.